Well, we finished up uh, the Council of Trent last time, and I thought I'd spend a few minutes just summarizing that great reform council. You remember there were two uh, essential parts of Trent, two, two, two types of, uh, of um, emphasis. One was on reform and one was on doctrine, remember, because Trent, as most councils, was called in response to a crisis, the crisis of the Protestant Reformation. Lutheranism, and then later Calvin, but primarily Luther's attack on the church. And Luther had attacked the church both on the doctrinal side and on the discipline side. He had attacked both the practice of the faith and the faith itself. And those all got tied up. A good example of that would have been the great... Uh, theme of indulgences, which Luther attacked, not only in practice, the way indulgences were traded, which, which, which had become corrupt, but also the very premise, the very premise that the church could forgive temporal punishment for sins. And what Trent did, which, which I think makes it the great council, certainly since Chalcedon in the 5th century, probably the great council, was to reaffirm truth and reform practice. So Trent did not reform doctrine because there was nothing wrong with doctrine. Because remember, Catholicism is truth. There's only one truth. That's, that's, the, that's the great synthesis of Catholicism. There is only one truth. That was a great synthesis that Thomas Aquinas had defended back in the 13th century. That there's classical learning, Aristotle, Plato. There's biblical learning, there's scripture. It's all one truth. There's not two truths. It's all one, one truth. That great synthesis of reality, of truth, was the church had defended uh, since the beginning, was under attack by not only Luther, but the whole Protestant principle, which I mentioned one time, tended to separate this synthesis into different compartments. So there might be two truths. It might be true for you, it might not be true for me, which is philosophically nonsense. So what Lutheranism had done was to, was to separate the body and the soul, so to speak, separate that great synthesis of, of, of truth. Because what Luther had said was, was uh, had, had had difficulty with was accepting that 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 it that it there's a tension there, there's a paradox. All truth is paradox. T.J. mentioned that. All truth is paradox. We're free and we're under the providence of God. We have free will and God is all-powerful. God is one and God is three. Christ is a man and Christ is God. Those are paradoxes. Can't, they don't make sense rationally, but we accept them as truth because all of, all of truth is complex. There's this tension being, there's this 
paradoxical elements being held in tension, which is good definition of true. So by separating all that, by see, there's sort of a, I don't want to get off track, but you know the word Gnosticism. Protestantism, in a sense, is a Gnostic heresy, like most heresies. Gnosticism separates, you know, Gnosticism, you live and breathe it, believe me. We live in a culture based totally on Gnosticism. Gnosticism, which drives a wedge between the body and the soul, between God and the world, between love and truth, and says, well, there's actually two principles, not one. The created world is, is, is evil, and we must either deny it or escape from it or pretend it doesn't exist. There are different variations there. But anyway, what Trent did was say, nonsense. We're going to reaffirm all those difficult doctrines. If you have a problem with veneration of the saints and relics, too bad. Too bad. We're not going to meet you halfway. We're not going to say, well, maybe you, maybe Luther is partly right and we're partly wrong. Maybe we could compromise on these truths. Maybe we could, maybe we could, uh, maybe we could agree to disagree on these truths. No, nonsense. What Trent said was, this is true, and we're going to reaffirm it. You have a problem with purgatory? Too bad. This is what it means. You have a problem with indulgences? This is a proper, this is what indulgences mean. You have a problem with images and churches? We're going to build Baroque splendor. We're going to build the Jesu, the Baroque, the extravagant Baroque churches in Rome. If you want to really see the Catholic Reformation uh, go to Rome, we'll talk a little bit about that later, but the explosion of uh, explosion of truth, so to speak, a celebration, a celebration of, of Catholic truth. Did you ever problem with the Mass? Too bad. You don't think priests are empowered to consecrate the host? Well, they are. We're going to reaffirm transubstantiation. We're going to reaffirm the real presence. We're going to celebrate all those great Catholic truths that Luther rejected. So there's no, there's no watering down of truth in Trent. It's a bold statement of, of Catholic truth. Now on the reform side, There was, there was uh, an extraordinary energy of reform, but like most councils, what really, what made Trent the great council was what happened afterwards. Because all, all the great councils can do is simply affirm truth, set things right again. They didn't have to be put in practice. So after Trent, what happened after Trent was the great success of the council. And how, and how is the church normally reformed by saintly people? By God raising up saints. Uh, 
they might have been called saints at the time, but we call them saints now. Some of the great <coughs> counter-reformation saints. St. Charles Borromeo, Borromeo, we're going to talk about St. Philip Neri, St. Pius V. That at, at, that at a time of crisis, that uh, bold and courageous and holy people uh, suddenly appeared. We're praying for them now <laughs> to reappear as in all times. But the church has always needed reform within and without. So we're always praying for saints. But they, they, they appeared in the, in, the, in the 16th century. So in Trent, uh, Trent concluded Pius IV was a pope. He was the great pope who had seen the council through to its conclusion, the third session, managed uh, through, through two extraordinary capable ministers. Charles Borromeo had been a papal legate at the council, and then uh, Cardinal Moroni, who had helped to sort of, we mentioned last time, had, had, uh, were, not only, were not only devout men, but very able administrators who had helped to bring the council to a conclusion. So then it remained to put it into practice. Because one of the one of the one of the debates at the council was was what the council called the reform of the head, meaning the reform of the papacy. And the and the problem with the council was that the papacy wasn't willing to to submit to the authority of the bishops of the council. And the council wanted to wanted wanted some assurance that the, the curia the Vatican, the, the, the papal curia, the papacy itself would be reformed because, again, that's where a lot of the financial shenanigans had taken place. Simony, selling of offices, uh, the, 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 the financial corruption. So what Pius IV had did was promise, basically promise the bishops, promise the, the, the Catholic princes that uh, that yes, we will reform the papacy. We will reform the curia, but it'll be reformed from Rome, not from the council. So what Trent did, in one sense, was reaffirm the authority of the papacy of the pope to reform itself, which is exactly what what Paul the Fourth began to do, was to implement the decrees of uh, of Trent, not only doctrinally with the catechism. Uh, but by issuing papal bulls to to enforce what Trent had promulgated. In other words, uh, if, you, if you remember the great issue of residency, all you bishops and cardinals enjoying a life in Rome, leave. You belong in your diocese. You belong with your people. You're supposed to be preaching, teaching, shepherding your flock, caring for souls not drinking a cappuccino with Michelangelo. <laughs> so, so, uh, and that began to happen. And, and what, what, what happened after Trent was it no longer became uh, acceptable over time. It no longer became acceptable for cardinals and bishops to hang out in luxury. It began, to, it began to be frowned upon. I mean, things take time. Then obviously there were exceptions. But over time, and, and 
the great example of that is Charles Borromeo, Carlo Borromeo, an Italian, St. Charles Borromeo, we, we call him, who had been a nephew of Pius IV. And uh, of course, in those days, remember, the whole nepotism problem, he had been made a, uh, I think he was made an abbot of a monastery when he was 12. He was made a cardinal as a teenager, I think. Because Pius IV, although he wanted to reform the Curia, he still, he still made a lot of his nephews <laughs> cardinals as teenagers. And in this case, it was this case was a very good decision because one of them became a saint, Carlo Borromeo, who, like, as a nephew of the Pope, had been born in, as an, as an aristocrat in the part of the nobility in Milan, in the area around Milan, and uh, had been brought to, uh, to Rome. Highly educated and extraordinarily devout. Extraordinarily devout. Had been brought to Rome after the, after the council. Remember, he was part of the council, helped to conclude the council, and then was brought to Rome to help begin the process of reform, which he did. Started uh, uh, with papal secretary of state, you're talking about somebody maybe 21 years old. He's one of the highest-ranking people in the in the Curia, and he he begins with like-minded people to 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 reform reform the papacy, and also begins uh, what we would call what you call like little holy clubs, little little, little groups of devout devout people uh, meeting for prayer. Uh, for him singing, uh, going out into the into Rome, going out into the city, essentially evangelizing. We, we would call it maybe preaching on the street corner, <laughs> basically going out and confronting people with 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 uh, with the faith. Uh, when uh, the book that. Uh, is a good introduction to these saints. TJ's got it too. Is uh, TJ gave it to me actually? It's called Heroes of the Counter Reformation. Uh, Joseph Pierce. Do y'all know Joseph? He was here for a while. Where is he now? He's a Prince of Peace, right? Uh, very prolific writer. Written a biography of about every Catholic in the world, uh, from Chesterton to to Tolkien. Wonderful man, wonderful speaker. If he ever comes to speak, be sure and go hear him. He's a great speaker. Uh, Joseph Pierce, this is called Heroes of the Catholic Reformation. Good, uh, it's a very good introduction to some of these people we've been talking about. Pius V, Charles Borromeo, the great English saint. What Charles, what, Borromeo put into practice was, was these two things that often get separated, love and truth, that staunch defender of the truth, of the faith, of the Catholic truth, but at the same time, a passionate zeal for souls, for the poor, for sinners. I guess that's what makes a saint, <laughs> holding those two together. So a refusal to compromise on the truth, but at the same time, uh, see, see uh, uh, the, the predecessor of, uh, 
uh, Pius IV had been Paul IV. We won't get into a lot of Paul IV, but he'd been sort of a puritanical pope, harsh, uh, it's sort of, uh, I call him the, 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 the Puritan of the Counter-Reformation. One of the most unpopular popes in history. When he died, all of Rome celebrated and pulled down his statues and burned his buildings. <laughs> he was a harsh uh, disciplinarian and refused to, anyway. He would have been an example of truth without love in many ways. The great saints hold, hold both intention there. So Borromeo uh, was made an archbishop of Milan when his uncle died, returned to, to Milan under Pius V, the TJ I talk about, and set about implementing exactly what Trent had talked about, cleaning up his diocese. Milan was the largest city in, in Italy, almost a million people, 8,000 priests, had not had an, a bishop in residence for 80 years. To give you an idea of some of what, of why, why there was a need for reform. There hadn't been a bishop in Milan in 80 years. He'd been hanging out in Rome. So when Charles showed up, there's a new sheriff in town. Sort of like when Father Newman preached his first homily here. There's a new sheriff in town. Well, when Borromeo went back to Milan, uh, let's just say he wasn't necessarily greeted with open arms. Things had gotten slack and corrupt. And uh, he began to clean it up, began to uh, attack, began to visit uh, monasteries, convents, religious houses that had, that had become corrupt and slack and began to clean those up, began to enforce clerical celibacy, began to clean up the morals of his clergy, began to require his clergy to be educated, to actually know the faith, to actually preach the faith, cleaned up the liturgical abuses, cleaned up the great cathedral, changed the liturgy, required the, the host once again to be the center, the Eucharist, the center of the mass, cleaned up the music, cleaned up the statuary in the great cathedrals that had been cluttered up with monuments to powerful families, ripped all those out, threw them away. Needless to say, that wasn't very popular. Replaced those with statues and commemorations to, great, to the great saints and biblical figures. In other words, return, began the process of returning uh, the practice of the faith to what it was supposed to be, what, what it, what, to, what it, to its, in a sense, purer form. Uh, if you go to Mass at St. Mary's today, obviously we do, uh, Charles Bor Borromeo would have been right at home at St. Mary's. With the with the with the liturgy, with the solemnity, with the holiness, with the with the music, because he also loved music. And one of the great we we'll talk about this in another class. One of the great fruits of Trent was it reaffirmed the use of images and music 
in, in the liturgy. See, Luther wanted to get rid of all that. Don't forget the Lutherans were marching all over Europe, destroying stained glass windows and relics and ripping down vestments and burning churches. and uh, They were iconoclast. They had rejected the very idea of deco decorations in church, holy decorations. So what Trent did was to, was to reaffirm that. One of the great effects of Charles Borromeo and his friend St. Philip Neri was they were great music lovers. So the great composers of the 16th century, like Palestrina, Giovanni Perluigi de Palestrina, the great polyphony composer, uh, Thomas Luis de Victoria, the great Spanish composer, composed in Rome for <coughs> Borromeo, for Philip Neri. So one of the great grapefruits of Trent was this flowering of Renaissance music and art. Remember, this is the middle of the Renaissance. This is the high Renaissance of the 16th century. The Lutherans running around destroying stained glass windows, and the church is, is uh, underwriting Michelangelo, rebuilding St. Peter's. If you really want to see the Catholic Reformation, go to St. Peter's and then go to the local Baptist church and say, okay, that's, uh, that's what we're defending. So what Borromeo did was to, was to clean up the liturgy, clean up the mass, restore it to its beauty, to, to its holiness. And so in, as, as far as affirming truth, defending doctrine, that's what he did in Milan, and he wasn't popular, obviously. He, he was, uh, one group tried to assassinate him, shot him at mass, at Vespers, actually, was shot. He survived, uh, his followers believed, believed miraculously, sort of like John the Paul II, miraculously survived the assassination. They tried to assassinate Charles Borromeo, a member of a religious house that he was trying to clean up. Uh, so, it's not always easy to be a reformer, <laughs> even, even within the church. And then what happened in Milan was that the plague, the plague uh, hit Milan with devastating, uh, devastating consequences. Famine, plague, uh, the secular authorities basically got up and left. Uh, the, the government essentially left and the people were dying and starving. And so what St. Charles, St. Carlo Borromeo did was to essentially take over the governance of Milan and organize relief and care for the dying and the sick and marshal his priest, overcoming some resistance at first. We're not, you, want, you, want, you want us to go into that place where there's plague, what? But eventually, Marshaled his priests together and tended uh, tended to the plague-stricken victims of Milan. Fed 60,000 people for months out of his own resources. Uh, essentially, became a heroic, uh, and that's really where where Borromeo's popular appeal came from, those, that's the saintly courage that he exhibited during the plague in Milan. And, and, and survived the plague and then died of a fever later. But 
read to you something from uh, he did he established charities in response to the plague he established hostels for beggars and tramps orphanages for boys and girls a home for reformed prostitutes another home for homeless girls another home for married women seeking refuge from abusive husbands, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All those great philanthropic achievements of the church, Borromeo put those in practice in Milan. And you see, that's always been that's always been the greatness of the church. And there's only one truth. There's no difference between truth and love. You know, today we want to, people want the church to compromise its truth out of quote love. That's nonsense. It's all one. It's all one and the same. What what Borromeo did was clean up and defend, clean up the liturgy, defend the doctrine, and at the same time, give himself in love and service uh, to the poor, to the suffering, to the needy, to everybody, not just those who agreed with him, those who were trying to kill him, basically, and, and that's. That's what makes the same. His uh, the book. If you really want to get into Borromeo in detail, uh, and before I get, turn it over to TJ, he wrote a seven hundred page tome book chronicling his reform in Milan. It's called Acta Ecclesia Mediolanesis in Latin, basically Acts of the Church of Milan, the great Acts of Borromeo, in which he chronicles what he did, how he, how he reformed the abuses in the liturgy. 1577, he published his Instructions on Church Buildings and Furnishings, which again would, uh, would fit right in with St. Mary's. He placed the tabernacle containing the reserved sacrament in the center of the main altar. He made sure confessionals were instituted and located in the body of the church. Uh, these were not unknown, but were rarely done. So. Any question about Carlo Borromeo, one of the great saints of the church? The great saints of the counter—I I don't even—I hate, I I hate to use the word counter-reformation. That's, that's such a bad, such a terrible word for the great Catholic Reformation of the 16th century. There was no counter-reformation. There was a Catholic Reformation, and there was a Lutheran Revolution, which sought to basically destroy the great Catholic synthesis. So we won't use that word anymore. Mark, strike it from your vocabulary. Pius V, St. Pius V. That it's interesting that it's this group of saints. They always seem to sort of like go in clusters. That you have different centuries where you have different clusters. Probably the biggest cluster of saints ever was the 
end of the fourth century, beginning of the fifth century, where you have everyone from St. Augustine to Gregory the Great to even St. Patrick were actually alive at the exact same time. Um, this huge amount, the Cappadocian Fathers, uh, all of these. But the 16th century, you have another large cluster of saints. You have a cluster of them in England. You've got a cluster of them in Italy. And the fact that St. Charles Borromeo, St. Philip Neri, St. Pius V, they're all alive at the same time. They all know each other. Um, it's pretty amazing. And it's th this is how God reforms the church. He's, usually he'll just send groups of saints at the same time. And in concert, they're able to do a lot of reform. And Pius V is very interesting to go sort of in conjunction with Charles Borromeo because they're contemporaries and there's a lot of similarities between the two in, the, in how devout they are, but in some ways they're exact opposites at the same time. Um, so, for instance, Charles Borromeo, his mom was a Medici. His dad was a count and he's born in a castle. Like, I mean, that's... And his uncle is the, the Pope, another Medici. And then... As opposed to Pius V, um, Antonio, I can't remember, Gislieri um, was his name. He was uh, basically as poor as can be, that his family was extremely poor. He was born in northern Italy, um, but he was also very devout. And it's also important to remember that these guys are all the next generation after Martin Luther. Um, so Martin Luther's 1517, that these guys are all working in the end of the 1500s that this is actually the generation of John Calvin. Um, so the Reformation's been going for a while. This is the second generation re reformers that are going on um, is when these guys come about. And so anyway, Pius V, he was extremely um, poor. Um, he was very devout, and he actually ended up joining the Dominican order, and he was very renowned for his asceticism. And so he, he, and he was very very fervent in trying to help the church. And he actually, so he was put in charge of several different Dominican communities in northern Italy where he reformed as much as he possibly could, um, preaching against abuses. But then he spent most of his time actually right on the Swiss-Italian border going around trying to convert Calvinists, um, which were actually, there was like Calvinist hit squads that were going around trying to take him out. Um, but he... Um, was pretty successful at that. And then, actually, Pope Paul IV made him a bishop, the bishop of Sutri in near, um, in near Florence. And anyway, he became a bishop, and he actually became a cardinal only a year later. And the, Pope Paul IV, as well as Pius IV, neither of them liked him at all. And the big reason why was even though... Um, Pius IV was doing a lot of reform. He was practicing nepotism. And that was a big thing that um, Antonio was against was nepotism. And he was calling the Pope out on it left and right. So even though the Pope was doing a lot of good things, he was calling him out on the sin of nepotism and he needed to knock it off. Um, but long and short, he got elected as the next Pope, Pius V. And once again, like Charles V, people knowing that there was a new sheriff in town, they knew it the same way when Pius was elected pope. Um, and because of the fact that people, they described it as, as it was as if St. Francis of Assisi was elected pope. Um, 
and that his extreme asceticism, for one thing that he famously did, was he, instead, before the Pope wore gold, that he started, kept wearing his Dominican habit as Pope. And so since, in honor of him, ever since then, the Pope has worn white. Um, and the other thing that he famously did was that usually, usually when a Pope would get elected, they would have a giant sort of like feast and celebration with all of um, the rich um, and the powerful, etc. So he took all the money from that, and he basically had a giant celebration in the streets with all of the with all of the poor and homeless um, in Rome. And then he sp spent most a lot large portion of his efforts trying to help the poorest in Rome, but most especially the prostitutes. That was where his like special ministry was too. And he actually spent vast amounts of money providing um, small fortunes for all of the young, basically poor girls of Rome so that they could get married and not become prostitutes. Um, so he saved thousands of girls from prostitution, um, which was a huge, huge portion of what he did. Uh, but the two things that he's most famous for, while he brought this spirit of asceticism to the church that um, Tony was talking about, where it no longer became, I was going to say kosher, to be a cardinal living in luxury after... Um, when the Pope himself is going and spent, spending a large amount of resources and time trying to uh, minister to the poor. But it's also important to remember, before I say the two things he's most famous for, it's important to remember that he did not skimp with anything liturgically. There's a great phrase I heard once about like the model priest wearing the threadbare cassock and gold vestments um, that the church still recognizes under Paul Pius V, that the main goal of the church is to worship and praise Christ and get people to heaven. So it's not like he was going and stripping the churches of beauty, that he was stopped. He didn't stop the, the great works of art going on. But at the same time, he practiced personal asceticism while um, recognizing that the art and beauty of the church wasn't for human, basically, reasons, but for the glory of God. Um, so that's an, an important distinction. So the two things that he's most famous for are his political struggles against Islam and Queen Elizabeth I. That those are the two things that historians most remember him for. That he's the one that organizes the Catholic forces against the Muslims at the Battle of Lepanto. Um, that G.K. Chesterton has his famous poem, The Battle of Lepanto, which actually it's the very beginning of the chapter on Pius V in Joseph Pierce's book that I think is a great sort of introduction to him with the lines, they have dared the white republics up the capes of Italy, they have dashed the Adriatic round the lion of the sea, and the Pope has cast his arms abroad for agony and loss and called the kings of Christendom for swords about the cross. So that's one of his most famous acts is that you have... Um, even though Elizabeth happens first, I'll start with Islam, that you have the Turks. Remember, the Turks have taken over Constantinople, um, that it has become the new like Turkish capital that doesn't become Istanbul until the 1920s, which for a lot of people I always think that that's when it does. But no, Constantinople, the Turks have taken over. And remember, I mentioned a few... I think last week, and actually probably the week before, that they are constantly sort of battering their way into Europe. But the big thing, too, is they also had the largest fleet in Europe and were systematically taking over the Christian islands 
um, that they had just taken over Cyprus. And lest anyone um, convince you that the Ottomans were somehow peaceful, um, peaceful, enlightened Turks, I mean Muslims, that there's actually a large community of <gasps> Turkish professors at Furman, et cetera, who like to paint the Ottomans as sort of this high, high point in Turkish or Islamic culture um, being enlightened, that when they took over Cyprus, they used the bishop and all of the priests as human torches um, throughout the city, that they were, that they were not um, nice people, that they had this huge fleet entirely manned by Christian slaves, that they would raid the coast of Italy, capture the children, and force them to become slaves rowing their boats. Um, on top of the, their their army of Merci, or of Janissaries, which were Christian children, they would also enslave and force them to become Muslims and to become um, soldiers. I mean that they were, were were pretty terrible, and they are planning their huge, massive invasion of Italy. And so that was when Pius V called for any Christian willing to help stop the Muslim invasion of Italy, um, because like I was going to say. Um, Winston Churchill, who called Italy the soft underbelly of Europe, the Muslims thought the same thing, that they could capture, if they could capture Italy, they'd be able to make head ground into Europe. And so um, famously, all of the Protestant lands refused. Elizabeth refused um, to send any help. And the only ones that sent any help were the Knights of Malta, who were actually under siege at the time, um, in Malta off the coast of Italy, but then also um, the illegitimate nephew of the Holy Roman Emperor, Don Juan of Austria. Um, so they put together a famous fleet, the Holy League it was called, mostly of Spanish ships. Um, but then you had the Battle of Lepanto off, off the Bay of Lepanto, which is near Greece. And it was one of the most important naval battles in history because you had this massive fleet headed towards Italy and it was stopped. And famously, the Virgin Mary appeared up in the sky during the battle and it, the Muslim fleet was utterly obliterated. That they, The Ottoman Empire only had 30 boats left after the Battle of Lepanto. Um, and famously, they, they rescued around 20,000 slaves. Um, so it was a huge miracle. And this is when um, Pius V, being a Dominican, that the rosary had been given to St. Dominic, and the Dominicans were the very um, strong devotion to praying the rosary that he had called for all the Catholics of Europe to pray the rosary during the battle. And so in Thanksgiving, he um, instituted the actually two different feasts. Uh, the Feast of Our Lady, the Rosary, but then also um, St. Mary, help, help of Christians. Um, and then also, he also wrote the Litany of Loretto um, to go along with the battle too. Um, Christ sa saving Christendom from the Islamic invasion. So that's, a, a, right there alone, is good enough reason to remember Pius V with good things. And I think the other th good thing that he did was he excommunicated Queen Elizabeth. Um, but this is the thing that historians always like to rake him over the coals for. And even Catholic historians, that there's a little bit of a realpolitik that they look back historically and they say, ah, oh, it was such a mistake that he excommunicated Queen Elizabeth because it ended up making life, the lives a lot harder for Catholics in England. 
that, it, that they say he didn't properly understand um, what it was like for Catholics in England, and he didn't know the consequences. And actually, it was his excommunicating of Elizabeth and the consequences of it that many within the church used to convince the Pope right before World War II not to publicly condemn Adolf Hitler because of the fact that they used the example of the persecution that happened to the Catholics under Elizabeth, therefore they didn't want the same to happen. Now, the reason why I say I think it was actually a good thing that he did it was several reasons. That one, if you are actually take seriously the Catholic faith and what Queen Elizabeth was doing, there's a couple points um, to take into account. Um, one is that she was not the legitimate Queen of England. That she was probably around, had the third or fourth best claim to be Queen of England, but had been made Queen of England by the Protestants trying to um, force um, England back out of the Catholic fold after it had been returned under Mary. And when you look at the systematic persecution of the Catholics that was taking place, that, um, that the mass, actually, here you go, there's a, I can actually read you a little bit from the papal bull. Um, all right, here you go. Here's from the papal bull. Um, that Pius here first or Elizabeth as the pretended queen, um, because of the fact that she wasn't the legitimate queen. So, and he talked about her strong hand with which she sought to prohibit the practice of true religion. All right, so she has removed the, the royal council, composed of the nobility of England, has filled it with obscure men, being heretics, oppressed the followers of the Catholic faith, instituted false preachers and ministers of impiety, abolished the sacrifice of the mass, prayers, fasts, choices of meats, celibacy, and Catholic ceremonies, has ordered that books of manifestly heretical content be propounded to the whole realm, and that impious rites and institutions after the rule of Calvin, entertained and observed by herself, be also observed by her subjects. She has dared to eject bishops, rectors of churches, and other Catholic priests from their churches and benefices, to bestow these on other things ecclesiastical, upon heretics, and to determine spiritual causes has forbidden the prelates, clergy, and people to acknowledge the Church of Rome or to obey its precepts and canonical sanctions, has forced most of them to come to terms with her wicked laws, to abjure the authority and obedience of the Pope of Rome, and to accept her on oath as their only lady in matters temporal and spiritual, has imposed penalties and punishments on those who would not agree, and this has exacted them, exacted of those who persevered in the unity of faith in the aforesaid obedience, has thrown the Catholic prelates and parsons in prison, where many worn out by long languishing and sorrow have miserably ended their lives, and all these matters are manifest and notorious among all the nations. They are so well proven by the weighty witness of many men, and there remains no place for excuse, defense, or evasion. All right, now the reason why he excommunicated her was obviously everything that she's doing, but there was actually a large rebellion that took place in the north of England led by Catholics because of the fact that she was not the legitimate queen of England and so in that she was doing that she was overthrowing um, the traditions of how England was governed, etc. Um, and they had called for asking Pius V to please excommunicate her so that the average citizen of England, the average 
person that they can see clearly like, okay, like we do not owe allegiance to this woman that's pretending to be queen. Um, she's not the rightful queen anyway. Um, but the problem is that things moving slowly that she had put down the rebellion right before the excommunication happened. Now, the reason why people say that it was a bad idea was the fact that her um, ministers, in particular her spy network, etc., that they use this as an excuse um, once that she gets, because not only did he excommunicate her, he actually, sorry, he went farther to say that um, all ties of loyalty are broken and that nobody is bound to follow her um, in her entire kingdom. Um, that they use this as an excuse to basically persecute Catholicism as treason and therefore make it a, a capital offense. And so therefore they began to even to crack down even harder upon the Catholic Church. And this is the period of like the massive persecutions and martyrdoms within England after this. Um, this is when you, you see the time period where England gets famous for having like the priest holes in the houses of the secret Catholics where they would hide priests who were going around trying to um, give out secret sacraments. Um, the term for the secret Catholics in England, uh, recusant Catholics, became famous. And actually there's a lot of very famous people in England at this time who were secret Catholics. Um, every, some people even think like William Shakespeare might have been one. And actually, it's really interesting. A lot of these famous people were all one at Oxford at the same time, and which was a Catholic hotbed. But then uh, we're all in Italy at the same time, too. So actually, Shakespeare and his brothers were famously all in Italy at the same time. Um, the famous Catholic or the famous English architect Indigo Jones was a secret Catholic. William Byrd, who was actually Elizabeth's own composer, uh, was a secret Catholic. That there was a bunch of, this, it's an interesting time period, but they use this as an excuse to say, well, Catholicism is not just heretical in their eyes, it's treasonous. Now, what it, I say why it was a good thing, though, is it is never a bad thing to call a spade a spade. Like, if you're living in England, like, what they were doing was evil. And the Pope calling it out as evil, um, in fact, I would say, gave, probably gave a lot of Catholics the moral fortitude necessary to stand up with sort of the manly courage necessary to actually face martyrdom um, when necessary, um, to know that what they're doing is right, and to, to, be, to be willing to, um, like I said, face it with open eyes and... Um, so, for instance, there's a the series of great saints that are going to happen in England. They all happen right after this. So you're going to have martyr after martyr from Robert Southwell to um, Margaret Clithrow to um, Edmund Campion that they all are going to basically be galvanized by um, Pius V into like, yeah, this is evil and um, we're not going to put up with it. And so the fact that large amount get martyred is not necessarily, I mean, it's sad, but that's how Christ was, ends up reforming the church oftentimes. So it's the phrase in the early church that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, so anyway, so from one side, you could say it wasn't prudent, but if you were to say the opposite, um, that there was a, not the opposite, if you were to apply it, like I said, to the 20th century and Adolf Hitler, um, the same argument that people, when they were describing what 
Pius V's excommunication did, that not only did it galvanize the English Catholics against her, but it also it galvanized um, particularly Spain and Portugal, who had been traditional enemies against her. That we tend to think of like the Spanish Armada, because we all went to school in America with from an Anglo-American heritage, where it's you learn about, isn't it so great that the English defeated the wicked Spanish at the Spanish Armada? It was such a miracle that God sent this storm. Uh, but the thing is that the Spanish Armada, it, in some ways you could say, yeah, the miracle was it did, it didn't succeed. But it was not a good miracle um, that sometimes God allows terrible things to happen for the sake of basically um, bringing good out of it, etc. So for some reason, just as God allowed the Muslims to take Constantinople, he allows people the free will and choices, like bad things sometimes happen. I think, I mean, the same reason that a freak storm hit and the Spanish Armada did not succeed. But the fact that Spain was willing to bankrupt itself, bankrupt itself, in order to try to help the Catholics of England to have the sacraments is a pretty noble thing uh, and a pretty amazing thing. And if it, the Spanish Armada, had, which was on like a knife's edge, if it had succeeded, we would look back on Pius V, excommunication of Elizabeth, all of this very differently. We'd also all probably be speaking Spanish, but um, it's a nice language. All right, but anyway... Um, that's true. At least I wouldn't be speaking German. Right. Um, so anyway, the, the excommunicating of her, that if we were to say, though, the description, actually, I there was a great quote in here. Um, all right. So a biographer of Pius right after um, he lived des- described this as Queen Elizabeth, Queen of England, whom the Protestants of this nation deservedly call the bulwark of the Reformation, was solemnly excommunicated by our saint. So this is a biography written by an English Catholic. Who, and talking about Pius V, though, who united Spain and Portugal against her and had omitted nothing in his power that might excite the Catholic princes against her and destroy her credit in the world for the interests of religion. Now, think about this. This is, I thought, Joseph Pierce did a great job, that if you were to describe that to the 20th century, that if someone wrote this about the Pope in regards to Hitler, that Hitler, Fuhrer of Germany, whom all lovers of freedom deservedly call the bulwark of totalitarianism, was solemnly excommunicated by Pius XI, who united the Americans and the British against him, and omitted nothing in his power that might excite the rulers of the free world against him. That in that context, someone hears that and they don't go, oh, that would be so foolish. Like most people say, oh, why didn't he do that? Um, it, but then out of the same time, they turn, the same historian turns and condemns Pius V and says, oh, it was foolish, though, that he did that for, towards Elizabeth. Um, so I, anyway, the point I'm trying to get is just because we just sort of naturally assume, oh, it was foolish to excommunicate her. It might have been. I'm not going to say for 100% it wasn't. But I think it also it might not have been. So it's not always as clear. Um, all right. So that is all I have on Pius V. Does anyone have anything they want to add, questions, comments, snide remarks?